2006, January 25th. Today will be lecture 15, the main sequence. Here in 1008 Evans Laboratory. We'll begin in just a moment. So, yesterday we talked about the question of star formation. Where do stars come from? What are the process by which they form? We broke it down into a two-stage process. First, where you take an initial gas cloud, a giant molecular cloud in the interstellar medium. That cloud begins to collapse because they're slightly unstable, so maybe it runs into another giant molecular cloud. Maybe it gets bashed by a supernova blast wave, or maybe it passes through a spiral arm. There's lots of ways to do it. The cloud begins to collapse and fragment. The densest fragments fall out from underneath the cloud. They collapse into their own gravity, and they eventually begin to heat up until finally they reach the point where pressure begins to balance gravity at any given instant. The objects achieve hydrostatic equilibrium, and they become a, a protostar. Once the protostar forms, they continue to grow as material rains on down upon them. Their interior heats because of the continuing compression. Eventually, that temperature rises above 10 million degrees if the protostar is larger than about 8% the mass of the sun. Below that mass, hydrogen will never ignite, and it never ceases to be a gravitationally contracting object. But if the core temperature rises above 10 million degrees Kelvin, proton-proton fusion is ignited. And as the star begins to grow, proton-proton and later CNO cycle and more massive stars begins to generate energy. And eventually, the, the energy liberated by hydrogen fusing into helium and emitting a little bit of energy because there's a mass difference between a helium nucleus and four protons the star will eventually achieve thermal equilibrium. It can make up all of its energy needs from nuclear fusion to pr provide for the needs of its luminosity, and the star settles onto the main sequence. But this is only the beginning. Even though that's quite a process, we now have an object which is in thermal and hydrostatic equilibrium, fusing hydrogen to helium in its core. It alights on the main sequence. Today, we want to now pick up the story where we left it off yesterday and talk about what is it that makes a star a main sequence star and what is the course of life of an object like the sun, which is in the middle of its main sequence lifetime? The key ideas today are to come down with a definition of what is meant to be a main sequence. Remember that main sequence was originally defined empirically as simply the diagonal band on the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram containing all the dwarf stars, all the class five stars. Now we're going to come up with a physical definition of a main sequence star. For a star to be in that diagonal band of the main sequence, it must be burning hydrogen to helium in its core. Now there's an interesting consequence of this, namely that as stars begin to age, as they burn hydrogen into helium, they're changing their interior composition, and we're going to see that that makes main sequence stars slightly brighter with age. The second part, second key idea to get across today is that the main sequence is a mass sequence. What makes the difference between an O star and an M star in the main sequence is the difference in their, in their mass. We already know this through the mass-luminosity relationship, but we're going to now hammer that down as a physical property of the stars. They're also going to turn out to be a two-fold division of the main sequence into what we call the lower main sequence. These are stars less than about 1.2 times the mass of the sun and the upper main sequence, which are all stars more massive than 1.2 solar masses. And we're going to see how that, that mass limit is not an artificial barrier that we draw between them. Say, well, it seems to be a convenient spot to draw it, but in fact represents where there is an, a, an important physical change in the interior structure of the stars between the upper and lower main sequence. And we'll see what that is here in just a moment. And finally, I want to introduce the idea of a main sequence lifetime. We've already seen this for the sun, but I now want to discuss it more generically 
in the case of all main sequence stars, not just the Sun. This main sequence lifetime depends very sensitively on the mass. We're going to see it's inversely proportional to the mass cubed. And this means that very, very large mass stars have very, very short lives in the main sequence. And similarly, small mass stars have very, very long main sequence lifetimes. We're going to see why that is physically and what some of the consequences of that are for what we observe when we look at the, at the nearby galaxy around us at nearby stars. Remember, as we said a few weeks, a couple weeks ago, when we first introduced the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, that about 85% of stars in the solar neighborhood, including the Sun, are main sequence stars. And we're going to see why main sequence stars are so common today. And for the rest of the week, we're going to explore what happens to the stars when they cease to be main sequence stars. So the main sequence is defined by the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, but it turns out for a star to be on the main sequence, it has to satisfy three membership criteria. The first of these is it must be in hydrostatic equilibrium. It must be in a state where pressure and gravity are internally balanced in the star at any given instant. It also must be in a state of thermal equilibrium in the sense that the amount of energy it generates is exactly balanced by its luminosity. Or put in a more physical way that its energy generation is balanced by the star's ability to transport that energy to the surface, be it by irradiation or convection or some combination of the two, to then heat the surface and shine away as luminosity. So a way of looking at it that's easy for me to think of it physically is the star makes as much energy, no more, no less, than it needs to radiate it away, and it can efficiently transport it from the center where it is generated by fusion up to the surface. And that leads us, of course, to the third requirement, is in order for the star to be in hydrostatic and thermal equilibrium, it must be fusing hydrogen to helium in its core to be on the main sequence. There are going to turn out to be other circumstances that we're going to see over the next two days in which stars can also reachieve hydrostatic and thermal equilibrium, but not on the main sequence. And that's going to be when they're fusing something other than hydrogen in their cores. So in order to be on the main sequence, it has to be hydrogen fusion and hydrogen fusion only. So all three of these things are requirements for them to be in that diagonal band of the HR diagram we call the main sequence. All of these are, by definition, dwarf stars, type luminosity class 5. If I relax any of these conditions, if I do something that causes the star to either stray out of hydrostatic equilibrium, or I affect the thermal equilibrium balance inside, maybe I run the nuclear reactions much stronger or weaker, or if for some reason I run out of hydrogen and I can no longer use hydrogen fusion into helium as my primary energy source, that star must leave the main sequence. By saying it leaves the main sequence doesn't mean it physically moves through space. What happens is that its surface temperature and its luminosity begin to change in response to internal changes in the star caused by one or more of these conditions beginning to lapse. And it will cause it to land on a different location in the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. So it will appear, if I were to take snapshots of its luminosity and temperature over time, to move to a new location in the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram off the main sequence. This is why the HR diagram is such a powerful diagnostic tool for understanding the course of stellar evolution. Because where a star lands on the HR diagram turns out to reflect its current evolutionary state primarily in this class. There's other details that give you the fine filigrees, but that basically is it. The different loci on the HR diagram represent where stars are in their, in their life cycle. Now, one of the interesting consequences is that we often think of stars as an equilibrium on the main sequence. And so even your book makes this mistake. 
you think of the main sequence as a situation of perfect equilibrium, as if it's a kind of stasis, as if a star gets on the main sequence and then doesn't do anything for a long time. That's false. In fact, if you look at the processes going on inside a star, main sequence stars are not just sitting there. Hydrostatic equilibrium is one of the requirements. This requires a very high central pressure in order to maintain it because you've got a great deal of gravity from all the way to the stuff pressing down upon you. You've got to have a high central pressure to push back and maintain that balance between gravity and pressure. Now, pressure depends upon two things in the ideal gas law. We've seen this before. We'll see it now reviewed. It requires a high, a, both temperature and density. Temperature is simply the mean speeds of the individual nuclei that are running around inside the star. The star is so hot in its core, the nuclei have been stripped of all their electrons. So we no longer refer to them as atoms per se. Molecules don't exist. It's just bare nuclei rushing around in a sea of, of electrons. The temperature measures the mean speed of those nuclei and electrons running around. Higher temperature, faster mean speed. But it also, the pressure depends upon the density times the temperature. So I also have to ask, how many nuclei do I have for every cubic centimeter, every cm cubed up there, of volume inside the sun? Density times temperature equals pressure. That's what this, the ideal gas law tells me. Now the problem is, is that two things are going on here inside the star, which are somewhat altering both the temperature and the density. Hydrogen is being fused into helium. So I'm taking four nuclei, and I'm turning them into one helium nucleus. So that means I've gone from four particles to one. So the total number of particles in each little cubic centimeter of the sun is slowly going down as that hydrogen is turned into helium. This means that in order for the nucleus to maintain the pressure to keep pushing out against gravity, since the t density is going down, the temperature has got to go up a little bit in order to keep that pressure constant. Well, if the temperature is going to go up again, the gas has to get hotter, the particles have to move faster, but the fusion reactions that we have in the core run faster, run, produce more energy at higher temperatures. So just to try to maintain that pressure balance in the deep core, as more hydrogen is turned into helium, the star has to readjust by making the core a little bit hotter, and it makes the fusion run a little bit faster. This means the star is producing a little more energy than it can possibly get rid of in a very slow and gradual fashion. This has a small effect on the structure of the star, making it a little bit hotter at the surface and making it radiate, making, it lum have, making its luminosity go up a little bit. So the bottom line is, as main sequence stars begin to age, as more of the hydrogen in their cores is turned into helium, the response of the star to that change in the bulk composition of the nuclei, of the core, is that it begins to slowly brighten. Now actually I said, I said something wrong there just a second. I said the, the surface gets hotter. Actually there's a sort of a nuance here, is if you work through the detailed equations of stellar structure. What you find in fact is the sun gets, as, sun, as the sun ages, the sun's about halfway through its age right now. As it's slowly turned about half of its available hydrogen into helium, it's about four and a half billion years old, it can last about 10 billion years, as we saw a couple, last week. So that means it's turned roughly half of its hydrogen into helium. The sun is actually now brighter, but oddly enough, a little bit cooler than it used to be when it first formed. And the reason why it's brighter is it may be a little cooler, but it's also slightly bigger.
It's actually grown, it's actually swollen up a little bit. All of that is a complex response to the fact that the structure of a star is determined by gravity, which tries to crush everything in, pressure, which tries to push everything out, energy generation by nuclear fusion in the core in this case, and energy transport, how that energy is carried away from the core to the surface. I have to solve all four of those equations simultaneously. I do so in a computer. And in fact, what we observe and what we see is that main sequence stars as they age get a little bit brighter. And I've given you the basic outlines that we have to get brighter because they're losing the number of particles in the nucleus as you take four and turn them into one nucleus, hydrogen, four hydrogen into helium, you have to readjust your internal structure in response to that. This is a relatively slow process in stars, so it's very gradual. Over historical time, we have not seen the sun get brighter. If you go back into geologic time, there does seem to be some evidence that the sun was fainter, a little bit fainter in the past than it is now. But that's, that's a detail we can't go into in this class. Now, so, main sequence stars don't just sit there. They actually get a little brighter with age as they burn up their hydrogen and helium. Now, where is a star in the main sequence? Is it a hot O star, dwarf star, or a cool M dwarf? Where it, how, where it goes on the main sequence is determined by, it turns out, just one parameter, and that is the mass. The location of a star along the main sequence is determined entirely by its mass. Low mass stars are cool and low density. They're the red dwarfs, or the lowest mass stars. The highest mass stars are also the hottest stars and the most luminous. So the main sequence is a mass sequence. As I go from O, B, A, F, G, K down through M, I am going from high mass to low mass, from hot to cool, from high luminosity to low luminosity. So where a star lands on that main sequence is determined uniquely by its mass. Now, the, one of the consequences of this is something that we saw before as an empirical relationship. If I look at the nearby stars in binaries that are on the main sequence, on the main sequence for which I can measure masses in their binaries, and I make a plot of their luminosity as a function of their mass, I find a very strong correlation we call the mass-luminosity relationship in that their luminosity is proportional to their mass to the fourth power. This means if I go up from one solar mass to ten solar mass, I have a luminosity go from one solar luminosity to 10 to the fourth, or 10,000 solar luminosities. Now, there's a plot of this. This is the plot we saw again last week. This is the mass-luminosity relationship for main sequence stars. This does not work for giants, does not work for white dwarfs, does not work for supergiants. It only works on the main sequence. And we see again that low-luminosity stars here, low-mass stars are also low-luminosity, High-mass stars are also high-luminosity. High and this is real data for all the stars for which we have any measurements of their mass in binaries, and the sun is the little red target there at one solar luminosity and one solar mass. Now, it's not perfect down here at the low-mass end. Something funny is going on structurally that we'll see in a moment. This is not an accident. It turns out that you can derive the mass-luminosity relationship by solving the equations of stellar structure, gravity, pressure, energy generation, and energy transport, exactly predicts the mass-luminosity relationship. The main sequence, therefore, this diagonal band across the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, from hot to cool along the x-axis, and from faint to bright luminosities along the y-axis, that when we go from hot, high-luminosity stars to cool, low-luminosity stars, we are going from high mass to low mass. And where a star lands on this main sequence along the diagonal band is determined uniquely by its mass. 
So the sun is where it is. The sun is a G2 star with one solar luminosity because it is a one solar mass star. A 10 solar mass star will be a hot sort of B or A star up here. A tenth of a, a, tenth of a solar mass star will be a cool red dwarf. So where you are in the main sequence is determined uniquely by your mass. Now the internal structure of the stars also changes with the mass. It also knows something about its mass. The nuclear reactions that we talked about, the way to fuse hydrogen into helium in the cores of stars is very temperature sensitive. The proton-proton chain fusion, collide two protons together, roughly goes like temperature to the fourth power. If I increase the temperature by 10%, the fusion rate will go up by 40%. The CNO cycle, as we saw the other day, goes on at much higher temperature. It goes on above about 18 million degrees Kelvin. The reason it goes on at higher temperature is because that carbon nucleus has six protons in it, and the other proton and the carbon have to be moving fast enough to overcome the electrical repulsion of all those protons in the carbon nucleus for them to collide and fuse. If the temperature is too low, their electric fields will simply deflect them before they get close enough to fuse. But if you're moving really fast, the proton will collide directly with that nucleus, be absorbed and fuse. And since the CNO cycle is carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen, I re need to have a proton captured first by carbon, then nitrogen, then oxygen, and then I think there's another oxygen in there somewhere. I forget exactly the sequence. I have to shove protons into big fat nuclei with lots of protons. I've got to be hot. That makes the CNO cycle, among other things, very temperature sensitive. The CNO processing rate goes like temperature to the 18th power. This means if I make a 10% change in the internal temperature, I make a 180% change in the fusion output rate. So this is a very, very sensitive little, thermo little thermometry going on here. It's a very sensitive thermostat. This leads to some important differences. As the stars get bigger, their interior cores get hotter. Just one second. And as a consequence, I get a different internal structure whether I'm a cool low-mass star or a hot high-mass star. And this leads naturally into a division of the main sequence into a high-mass and a low-mass end. And that dividing line occurs at about 1.2 solar masses. That turns out that the dividing line is the point at which proton, proton, and CNO can both go on within stars. Proton, proton dominates in the sun, but there's a little bit of CNO cycle going on as well just at the low level, at the couple percent level. But as the mass gets bigger, the core temperature goes up, CNO is much more sensitive to temperature, and so as the temperature in the core rises, CNO increases faster than proton-proton, eventually catches up and crosses it, and so in very hot cores, at about 18 million, CNO now dominates, and proton-proton gets slowly shoved into the 1% level. That crossover point is at about 1.2 solar masses. So this 1.2 solar masses is the dividing line. Less than 1.2 solar masses, proton-proton dominates over CNO. Above 1.2 solar masses, CNO dominates over proton-proton. Yes, sir, you had a question. Um, in your online notes, you had a T to the 16th. I was just making sure. Oops. That was an oops. Okay. It's a misprint in the notes. I'm a somewhat fallible typist, as many of you have probably already seen. Thank you for catching that. All of you should scribble that in your notes. So let's now look at the division from the upper to the lower main sequence. The upper main sequence will be those stars with masses above 1.2 solar masses, and that will mean temperatures in the core of better than 1.18, excuse me, million degrees Kelvin. Above 18 million Kelvin, the CNO cycle dominates fusion, 
and so I'm going to have a little bit of proton-proton, but CNO is providing most of the energy load. When this happens, it turns out because of the high temperature sensitivity of CNO cycle, I get a following two-fold structure. I get the core envelope structure just because of hydrostatic equilibrium. But because I've got this super sensitive temperature cycle going on here, I actually end up with the core becoming unstable against convection, and you get boiling motions in the core. So in a high-mass star dominated by CNO cycle, you get a convective core, and then the envelope gets bigger and puffier because of the energy needs streaming out through it, and it now becomes more efficient to transport energy out via radiation. And so I end up with a two-fold structure in which I have a convective core and a radiative envelope. So convection, boiling motions occur in the core. The core is extremely well mixed. As I make hydrogen into helium, that helium gets mixed throughout the tiny central core where fusion is occurring. So that means fuel is being taken and always mixed up and is always available for hydrogen burning via CNO cycle. Once I get outside the core, the envelope gets kind of big and puffy. It's, very tr it's relatively speaking not too, it's fairly transparent. It's not too opaque to photons. The photons can random walk their way out to the surface much more efficiently than mass motions can be set up. And so radiation transport dominates in the outer envelope. And so I end up with a convective boiling core, but a radiative envelope. And the reason why we get convection is because of the very, very steep temperature dependence of the CNO cycle. Basically makes the gas in here kind of unstable. You get a lot of heating at the base, not much at the top. That leads to a difference in temperature from base to top. That's very much like the difference in temperature from the bottom of a pot to the top. And you can very efficiently carry your energy out by setting up bulk motion. And that bulk motion is called convection. So you get this sort of boiling motion in the core. So the upper main sequence, above 1.2 solar masses, hot cores, CNO cycle, convective cores, and radiative envelopes. On the lower main sequence, the other half, mass is below about 1.2 solar masses. The core temperature is below 18 million degrees Kelvin. That means that the proton-proton chain will be the dominant form of fusion because CNO cycle is so temperature sensitive, it very quickly drops off as the temperature drops. But proton-proton holds its own. As a consequence of this, the core is actually much more stable, so you end up with a radiative core. Radiation transport, photon transport is much more efficient in the core. You don't get as much mixing, so you get a lot more fusion in the middle and the outside. You kind of get some, you get more helium buildup in the middle, less to the outside because it can't boil and mix as much. But once you get outside that, the envelope is somewhat cooler. It's somewhat more compact. It's more opaque to photons. Some of those photons get trapped heat up the low hot base above the core, it becomes unstable to convection. And so we end up with a large convective envelope. Now the actual size of the radiative zone depends upon the mass. Clearly there isn't just simply, I've shown a very big convective envelope in a small radiative core. The nuance that comes in here is this is actually a pretty low mass main sequence star by comparison. It's not super low, but it's lower than the sun. The sun actually has a pretty good sized radiative zone and only goes convective in kind of the upper third or so. But as the star gets smaller, that convective zone goes deeper and deeper and deeper, finally reaching all the way to the core itself. So a basic statement we can make about the structure of the lower main sequence is it's dominated by proton-proton chain fusion, it's cooler cores, and you have a radiative core and a convective envelope. That changes the structure of the star. It changes some of the details of how it's going to look on the main sequence and how it will leave the main sequence when it runs out of hydrogen. Now, the very lowest mass stars 
are those stars that are less than about a quarter of the mass of the sun down to the minimum mass of about 0.08 m sun. Again, we're dealing with cool interiors, cool cores, so we're dealing with proton-proton fusion dominating. However, in this case, both the core and the envelope become fully convective. And this is going to give us these objects we refer to as red dwarfs. So if you really wanted a good physical definition of red dwarf, it's going to be a star roughly under a quarter of the mass of the sun, which is now fully convective. And you'll remember we looked at that mass-luminosity relationship a little while ago, how the lowest mass stars kind of dribbled off the luminosity-mass relationship. They were a little bit more luminous than you would have predicted for their mass. And the reason for that is that mass-luminosity relationship begins to deviate from mass to the fourth power when you become fully convective. So that little kink at the bottom of the mass-luminosity relationship was not bad data. It was actually showing a profound structural change in the inside of the star as I went to the very lowest mass objects when they become fully convective. So we can often get clues from the outside appearance to differences of the inside configuration by how the, how the interplay between mass and luminosity, surface temperature, energy transport, and energy generation all work together. It's surprising when you think about it. Remember, we only see the outsides of stars. We only see their temperature and luminosity, and I can measure their mass if they're in binaries. But just from that data alone and some idea of their age on the main sequence, which tells me how much they've brightened since the moment they were born, the moment they achieved hydrostatic and thermal equilibrium, I can know what their interior looks like. In fact, for the sun, we know a lot more about the interior because I can actually see waves on the sun. There's something called helioseismology. You can actually see waves running through the deep interior, like waves running through the deep earth. Gave us a way of looking at the interior of the earth. Helioseismology experiments over the last 10 years have given us a wealth of information on the inside of the sun. One of our professors over here in our department is Mark Pinsano, who's probably one of the world's experts on the interior of the sun. The difference between the theoretical models of the structure of the sun and the observations from helioseismology differ by less than a half of 1%. That is a phenomenal amount of accuracy. It's a beautiful model. We actually really do know how stars work. It really is quite surprising. So the structure along the main sequence is going to look something like this. And very small stars are fully convective. As the mass begins to increase, I get a greater and greater fraction of the star growing into a radiative core surrounded by an ever-thickening convective envelope. This cartoon is not quite perfect in this. These convective zones should be a little deeper. When I get above 1.2 solar masses, the interior structure reverses. And I get a convective core and a radiative envelope. And this means that the stars actually grow a great deal more in size than they would have compared to lower mass stars. You don't have a whole lot of size difference between 0.8 and 1 solar mass, but by the time you get up to 3.5 and, and 7 solar masses, these are pretty big stars. But they're nowhere as big, nowhere near as big as a giant or supergiant. They're still dwarfs. And the reason they're still dwarfs is because they're still in the main sequence. Their luminosity exactly correlates with their mass, and they fall exactly along that diagonal band of the main sequence. You had a question there. All the main sequence stars for which we have measured masses. And that turns out to be about half of all main sequence stars. It turns out if you look in the sky, only half of the stars are in binaries. 
and the other half are all by themselves. The ones that are all by themselves, we don't know their masses. But we, we can relate the fact that there's a strong mass-luminosity relationship from those in binaries. And those binaries are such that the stars aren't interacting, they aren't working with each other and exchanging matter, that I can infer, oh, if I see a G2 main sequence star, those are all one solar mass stars. And in fact, we have various confirmations of that. Now, there's an important time scale at play here. I'm going to give you the complicated version of this first. We call this the nuclear time scale. We've already met this. This is the mass This is mass divided by luminosity that we use to, to compute how long could the sun shine by nuclear fusion. The full version of that formula is that the nuclear time scale is equal to the product of this number f, which is the fraction of nuclear fuel available for fusion. In the case of stars like the sun, 10% of the total mass of the star is in, in the hot enough portions of the core that fusion can occur. The other 90%, it's too cool for fusion. So I can't use 100% of the hydrogen in the sun. I can only use that fraction of the hydrogen that's above 10 million degrees Kelvin to, to burn, to fuse into helium. There's a factor here called epsilon, or E, which is an efficiency factor. It tells me the rate at which matter is converted into energy through the particular fusion reaction I'm doing. In the case of hydrogen fusion into helium, that efficiency is 0.007. It's 0.7 per 7 tenths of 1%. That number is simply the fractional mass difference between one helium nucleus and four protons. And then I multiply that by mc squared, where m is the mass of the, pro of the uh, helium nucleus, and I get that amount of energy out, E equals mc squared. So that's an efficiency factor. If I had a version of nuclear fuel, a nuclear burning process that was very inefficient, that would be a small number. Turns out that the most efficient nuclear fusion cycle is proton is hydrogen fusion into helium, whether I do that trick by CNO or proton-proton doesn't make as much difference as you might think, and that gives me the efficiency of 0.7%. Every other form of fusion that we're going to meet over the next few days is much less efficient. Finally, I have the total mass of the star times C squared. There's your E equals MC squared part for matter to energy conversion. That gives me the total amount of energy I can create per second uh, total amount of energy I can create, but I have to divide that by the rate at which I'm losing energy to luminosity. And if I take the amount of energy divided by energy per second, this will have units of time. So it gives me what we call the nuclear time scale. We've already seen this number for the sun. The nuclear time scale for the sun is about 10 giga years, 10 billion years, if we have about 10% of the sun available for nuclear fusion. And it does that fusion at an efficiency of about 0.7% by hydrogen to helium fusion. If I punch in all the numbers up there for the luminosity of the sun, mass of the sun, speed of light, f and epsilon, I will get a number of about 10 billion years. This is how long the sun can keep doing its fusion trick. This is an, such an important idea to us. In determining the lifetime of a star in the main sequence, I want to give you an analogy. Okay? It's a little bit of one of those demos. Here's your benefit for showing up for class, guys. I don't want to put everything in the notes. Let's take the analogy that stars is cars, part one. A low-mass star is like this little smart car here, shown photographed on the streets of Paris. Obviously, this is a weenie little Euro car. It has a small fuel tank. It has a low-power, low-performance engine, but it has extreme gas mileage, something like 40, 45 miles to the gallon. So even though this car is a poopy little weenie Euro car, 
it can consume its fuel really slow because it doesn't have a lot of weight. It's got a pretty good performance engine, and it can pretty much carry itself and its fuel along. It can travel a long ways on a tank of gas. If stars were this way, stars are this way. They have low luminosity, they have low energy needs, even though they have a small amount of fuel. They don't have to burn it up so fast. So low-mass stars should be able to stay on the main sequence for a long time. Red dwarfs are the Euro cars of of Euro little cars of stars. They don't have a lot of fuel, but they don't have a lot of energy need. They don't need to burn up that fuel so rapidly, so they can tootle down the road at a nice low little put 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 pace as long as they want. Now, what about high-mass stars? Well, obviously, we don't want to use the analogy of a weenie little Euro car. We want a manly American car. The world's most stupid motor vehicle, the Hummer. Hey, you know, well, some people like them, I guess. Military versions, okay. High-mass stars like a Hummer. It's got a gigantic gas tank, but the thing weighs about six, seven thousand pounds. So it's got to have this gigantic V8 engine in there, which just basically sucks the gas up like you know a kid sucking pop through a straw. It gets incredibly low single-digit gas miles. So even though you can fuel your Hummer up, you head out down the road, you're not going to get very far. And the reason you're not going to get very far running at full speed is because this thing just sucks the juice like you wouldn't believe, because it's got a huge mass. You got to move that mass down the road. So even if you can replace the back with a gas tank, you're not going to get as far as the poopy little Euro car. Why? Because your energy needs are disproportionate compared to your ability to carry and burn that fuel. Well, the analogy with stars is clear. A very, very high-mass star has tons of fuel, but it's got a gigantic luminosity, and it has to make up every single erg of that luminosity to shine. Which means it's got to burn through that huge reservoir of fuel at an absolutely furious rate. And it will run out of hydrogen faster, even though it may have a whole sun's worth of hydrogen available to it. It can blow through it in a few million years. So where do we get the nuclear time scale? Well, here's how we determine the main sequence lifetime. The time scale is that nuclear time scale I gave you before. It's basically the mass of the star divided by its luminosity. But these are main sequence stars. A main sequence star, the luminosity is proportional to the mass to the fourth power. So I can take this L here in the nuclear time scale and substitute in m to the fourth. Now I have m on top, m to the fourth on the bottom. Bingo! The main sequence lifetime is inversely proportional to the third power of the mass. What this means is high mass main sequence stars will have very very short lifetimes because I've got a big number cubed in the denominator. One over a big number is a little tiny number. Similarly, low-mass stars will be a small number cubed in the denominator. Main sequence stars that are of low mass will live a very long time. So, big stars are the hummers of the star world. They may have tons of fuel, but they have huge engine requirements. They have huge luminosity requirements, and they chew through that fuel faster than any other star. And therefore, they're going to run out of fuel faster. And remember, to be on the main sequence, you have to be fusing hydrogen to helium. When you run out of helium, you must leave the main sequence. You've lost one of those three requirements. You may be in hydrostatic equilibrium, you may be in thermal equilibrium, but when the hydrogen runs out, baby, you got to leave. Whereas a low-mass star, it doesn't have much fuel, but it doesn't have much needs. It's a low-luminosity star; it can live a long time.
Some examples. We've already seen the sun. The sun lives for one, is one solar mass, has one solar luminosity. I punch in the numbers and the time on the main sequence is 10 billion years. Since I know what the numbers are for a solar mass, it's easy enough to compute it for other stars on the main sequence. Let's take a massive star, kind of a coolish B star. Has a mass of about 10 times the mass of the sun. Therefore, the time on the main sequence will be this 10 billion years for one solar mass divided by 10 solar masses cubed, because the time on the main sequence is proportional to 1 over mass cubed. But now I can toss in 10 giga years because I know what 1 is, and 1 cubed is 1. That's how it makes it easy. I can get rid of that proportional and turn it into an equal sign. Well, 10 giga years divided by 10 cubed is 10 giga years divided by 1,000. One one-thousandth of a giga year is a mega year. So a 10 solar mass star only lasts for 10 million years. 10 billion years for the sun, 10 solar masses. It has available to it an entire sun's worth of fuel. But because its luminosity is 10,000 times the luminosity of the sun, it burns through that fuel in 10 million years. Remember that Kelvin Helmholtz time scale for the sun was 30 million years. The sun would last longer with no fusion than a 10 solar mass star with 10 times the fuel and nuclear fusion. So big mass stars live very short lives. Let's go to the other end. Let's go down to a red dwarf, a tenth of the mass of the sun. The time on the main sequence will be 10 giga years divided by one-tenth of a solar mass cubed. That's 10 giga years divided by one-thousandth, nasty fraction to do here. That gives you a time on the main sequence of 10 trillion years. So once a tenth of a solar mass star hits the main sequence, it only has one one-hundredth the mass of the sun. It only has the mass of the Earth in hydrogen available as fuel. But it's only one ten-thousandth the luminosity of the sun. And so it just can burn it at a really light, low pace, and it can do it for 10 trillion years. In fact, the universe is probably only a little over 13 billion years old. So any red dwarf that has formed since the beginning of the universe is still burning as a red dwarf. It's still expected to be a main sequence star because the universe has not been old enough for them to run out of fuel. So the consequences of this for the evolution along the main sequence. If I see an O or a B dwarf star, if I see an O or B main sequence star, I know it's got to be young because they run out of fuel within 10 million years. They're rare to start with. Not too many very high-mass stars are made, as we saw yesterday. And those that are made don't stay as main sequence stars for very long because they live so fast. They live for only a few million years. If you see an M dwarf, you got no clue how old it is. It could have formed yesterday. It could have formed 10 billion years ago. Those things can stay on the main sequence for 10 trillion years. So once they stay... You've got to work real hard to figure out their age. And the sun, finally, can last about a billion years on the main sequence. It's about five billion years old now, which means it's going to run out of its hydrogen fuel in about five billion years. And so the big question comes, what happens when the fuel runs out? That's what we'll talk about tomorrow. Okay, exams are going to be up along the front. My TA and my I have gone AWOL on me. There we go. There they are.